when I see someone who has science-based or evidence-based in their, uh, you know, their, their, their bio or their signature or whatever, I think there's a strong possibility that they might not be as open to anecdotal evidence and experience as they probably should be. Welcome to the N1 Experience, brought to you by N1 Education, the leader in fitness education. Today I have the Dr. Eric Helms uh, on the chat today, and today we are going to go through a series of things from looking at what is evidence-based and science-based practice to all of the nerdy stuff about muscle lengths and exercise selection. Um, so I know you, Eric, mostly through the scientific community and your role as a science communicator. So do you want to just let everybody know really quickly kind of who you are and what exactly is a science communicator? Yeah, man, for sure. So I, 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 I think it's pretty normal that you know me as a science communicator, but uh, and that is something I put forth. That's probably the primary way I'm online. But ultimately, I'm still a meathead. I'm uh, competing in a powerlifting meet if everything goes well coming up in July. And I've got my uh, bodybuilding season ahead of me, competing in probably like five shows from September to November. And this will be something like my, I don't know, 25th powerlifting meet in my like, I don't know. I'll probably hit my 20th bodybuilding show by the end of the year. So I, I really do love um, participating in the culture. And before I got into academia, I was a personal trainer and a coach for, geez, um, I guess a solid decade. And uh, I only became a part-time coach to focus more on my PhD in science communication sometime around 2013, 14, 15, somewhere in there. Um, as I was able to wind down my clients and start my PhD. But yeah, so a science communicator, I think an easy way to do it is by example. If you think of like Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, or if you want to go even back a, a generation before that for any of your older listeners or people who just like to read uh, Carl Sagan. Um, and there's not a great mold or example of how to do this for exercise science or sports nutrition um, that are outside of our community or that are, or, that, or that are bigger. But I think we've had a lot of them and historically, there's been a lot of them going all the way back to the beginning, um, and not always in a good way. Sometimes science historically has been used as a marketing tool more than an educational tool. But a science communicator is essentially someone who tries to help a quote-unquote lay audience, and I don't mean that disrespectfully by any means, um, penetrate science. And I do say penetrate because the way that science is conducted uh, traditionally is not necessarily targeted at being... Uh, directly understood and applied by the end user, um, which is the the person doing whatever it is. And this is to some degree field specific. Like if you think about it, um, like an astrophysicist is primarily communicating to engineers and other astrophysicists for, for good reason. Um, so you need someone like a Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson just to kind of share how the world works and how the universe works because it's, it's neat and that's really kind of what you need. But for something like sports science, um, where ultimately the end user is a coach or an athlete or an individual person in exercise science or nutrition who wants to change their lifestyle, um, it can be a problem um, where the impenetrable nature of science and the way it's conducted is a barrier to understanding it. And that's why there's an entire industry, which you and I are a part of, in taking these findings that are uh, in, you know, but often behind paywalled journals and written in ways that are not meant to communicate to the average person 
and doing the best we can to try to help them understand it. So that's, that's what I do. And I can do that because of my background and current participation as an athlete and coach, uh, but also because I've, uh, I'm just a nerd. So I did my bachelor's and then my master's. And then I came out to New Zealand and did a second master's and then a PhD. And now I'm actually, for the last six years, I've been a research fellow trying to pay it forward and mentor masters and PhD students who are also muscle nerds who want to come visit me in, 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 uh, in New Zealand and, and spend a few years with me doing sports science. Awesome. Awesome. So I think, I mean, I'm very appreciative to the people that are kind of having that role. Um, because I mean, on my side, well, I'm, I focus more on the biomechanics and stuff, you know, and looking at the research can be extremely daunting on those topics. Uh, like one, the material is just extremely dense. And two, when you look at that, oftentimes you have to actually be able to pull it apart to really understand what's going on. If you actually want to have like a nuanced understanding, like you can't even just read the paper anymore. Like every time there's a simulation model, I'd actually download that model so that I can look at it because a lot of conclusions will be made. And then I, you know, but you don't know, like, you don't know what the calculations are going on, you know, like, well, how was this? And sometimes I'll be like, okay, well, I'm using the model. And well, in this instance, the tricep is actually flopping over the humerus or the glutes are going through the pelvis. And so it's like, well, maybe that moment or internal moment arm data in this instance is not the best, you know, from, from this model. And same thing with some of the anatomical studies where it'll be like, well, okay, you know, a lot of places will do something like um tendon excursion method, which is essentially, you know, strings on a skeleton in some way, shape or form. Um, for some reason, if you do it on a actual, you know, cadaver, that scene is really good. But when we do it on models, then then not so good or whatnot. But like sometimes they won't, they'll be missing it. Like they won't have the rib, the rib cage that goes with the severed arm or whatever. And you have to take all that stuff in context. So being in this field, I'm extremely appreciative of the people that are actually taking that stuff on, you know, we'll talk about it from the, like looking at things like volume and, you know, frequency and all those things. And so I don't have to actually do that work in those. I only have to, I only have to do that for the stuff that I'm looking at specifically. And I can really appreciate the work that goes into making those complex studies very simple. And like, what's the, what's the important information that I need? Which takes me to my next question, which is the labels of evidence-based or science-based. Um, I think one thing you and I both agree on in listening to some of the other stuff is I don't think that we should actually be using these labels of like, I'm an evidence-based or I'm a science-based this. Um, I mean, what's the alternative? Like I make up everything that I talk about. Uh, like I think we can, you know... Like I prefer to be to say that I'm principle based. I use what evidence is available, and I and I use that to then create the principles that I use in an application. But what I was hoping to get from you is a description of what you think evidence or a science based approach looks like for somebody that's actually in the trenches, right? Either applying it as an athlete or as a coach. Good question, and you know I I have a. Uh... I have a mixed relationship. I have a love-hate relationship, I should say, with with these terms. Um, on one hand, I'm a scientist, and I like defining terms and having terminology. Um, but on the other hand, I participate in the space, and I know that 
that terminology is not something that everyone understands. So I think it is important to, to first like define what we're talking about and that'll help people understand why you're reticent of actually using that terminology because when one person says something, another person says something and the distinction is miles away, it really can put like a bad name or a bad taste in your mouth um, or just shows where it can be uh, misused and commercialized rather than actually used in an, any uh, educational way. So evidence-based practice or being quote-unquote evidence-based in any field uh, came from the evidence-based medicine movement of the like late 90s, early 2000s. And there's actually papers written on this and about what it is. And it's essentially been then ported over to um, personal training, exercise science, et cetera, uh, once the kind of uh, exercises medicine movement happened. So, you know, it started in, in medicine, the idea of, okay, what is an evidence-based practitioner? Largely driven by the fact that you had these doctors and medical practitioners who had great training, but that training occurred 30 years ago. And there was this culture of kind of this hierarchy in medicine and the doctor knows best. But if that doctor is operating in medicine from 20 years ago, do they know best? So how do we encourage and create a system to make sure that doctors are staying up to date with things? Um, but then also acknowledging that not everything that a doctor needs to know is published in a medical journal. A lot of it comes from their experience and a large portion of it comes from the individual needs of the patient who's sitting in their office at that time. So anyway, that's kind of the history. And, and if you look at some of the publications on that, they create this kind of three-legged stool of what evidence-based practices or evidence-based medicine is. And one is the staying up to, up to date with the current science. Um, but the other two legs are not related to science and they are seen as equal legs. And one of that is your personal experiences, things you've learned um, through repeated exposures and observation of patterns and seeing kind of quote-unquote what works in the quote-unquote trenches. Um, and then the other leg is the personal preferences and needs. And I think in exercise science, given that we have the principle of individuality, um, you could call that the individuality of the, of the, of whoever you're working with as, as a trainer, nutritionist, et cetera. So those things all need to be together to, 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 to call what you're doing evidence-based, um, uh, practice. And I think when people say science-based, um, I tend to think, okay, we're taking a step back from, from dealing with an individual and we're going, right, I'm going to create a system that kind of is broad and may not apply to any individual person perfectly, but it is based on the science. And that's fine. Um, you know, for example, like my books, The Muscle and Strength Pyramids, the general recommendations are almost by nature science-based rather than quote-unquote evidence-based because me saying 10 to 20 sets and then having three paragraphs saying, and by the way, you may do better at 10 or 20, or by the way, eight or 25, like you, you start to see the limitation of any time you give general guidelines based upon quantitative numbers, even when you provide broad ranges, because some individuals respond so differently than that. So I think that's why being evidence-based is sometimes frustrating because you'll see someone get online, cite a meta-analysis and say, everyone should be doing X, Y, and Z. And they're, you know, critiquing a a, a pro athlete who is, you know, 38 and has been, you know, kind of working with a coach and a team and they found what works best for them for 20 years. And then some 21 year old comes on there and, and throws down a PubMed study. And that that's, that's a surefire way to frustrate the bros, but me as well, because I think they're not acknowledging the fact that 
the experience and the individual needs of that person may differ enough from the literature that it might look like it's in conflict with it, but it's not, you know? And I think generally starting, I, I view it as like uh, painting a house. You know, you're, you're going to put down big, broad strokes on this wall behind me, you know, the pink here, the white here, but the detail work is, is kind of where those other two legs come in. Those big, broad brush, broad brush strokes. Yeah. The principles, like you were saying behind what's an appropriate dose um, you know, what's an appropriate calorie intake in the rough ballpark. Those are probably going to be relatively universal, but how you adjust them, how they change over time and where you go from there to better individualize is going to be heavily based upon your experience and then your consultation with the athlete you're working with if you're a coach. So that's kind of how I see evidence-based practice and science-based practice. Um, and when they are bastardized, it is very frustrating. Um, the way it applies to get more to your, your question, uh, like, what do you do with this? If you're a trainer or a content creator or a writer or, or anyone in the space who's trying to help people and work with individuals, um, it should be principle-based because ultimately those are the things that, well, if, what, what is a principle, right? So that, that's a good question. So, you know, a principle is, is an understanding of a collection of data on a given topic that helps us understand and create a narrative around something that is usable and cohesive, you know? So, um, these, these change sometimes, but typically they stay roughly the same. So like the principle of overload, uh, is one that we all understand. And if we're not doing something that doesn't challenge a system in the body, it won't adapt over time. Um, and you know, you throw the word progress over that, it explains it a little better, but you know, even that can give people kind of the wrong understanding. So principles are tend to be these timeless pieces of collections of data from over decades that you understand them in a big picture sense. And if, if long as you're operating within those realms, you're probably okay. And that's why the approaches from 1985, uh, were, were sufficient to get people to improve and do things right. And why sometimes you'll see the people who are very critical of the nuanced discussion of evidence-based stuff. be like, I don't understand why you're, why you're, arguing over this minutia, like just eat, eat protein, be in a calorie surplus, do enough work, train harder than last time and let all these nerds shut up. What they don't realize is that each one of those things they said, you know, eat enough protein, do X, Y, and Z and this, those are the principles, right? Progressive overload, you know, muscle protein balance, uh, you know, sufficient caloric intake, rest and recovery, principle of individualization, all of these things, um, some of them did just come out of experience and in the intuitive understanding of what happens when you lift weights, but a lot of them did actually come out of uh, research. So I think that marriage is really important. And um, yes, you can you can let the nerds argue about the stuff that is yet to become a principle or yet to be firm because uh, they're interested in it. And that's the only way this stuff does get firmed up. Um, but you know, it's also good to acknowledge that the stuff that was argued about 30 years ago that has become a principle now is actually what's serving you, whether you realize it or not, but we should ultimately be principle-based primarily. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to get you canceled by the evidence-based community or anything, but I wanted to throw out like, you know, the controversial question. So in, in, in my experience, I feel like the labels have been used more as like a marketing tool or a flex, like the people that I would consider the most evidence-based um, and the best communicators of that information um, often don't have those labels, um, you know, or if they do, it's not like 
it's not like they wear it like this this batch all the time. So this, I was going to ask you, like, do you think there is a correlation between the number of people that have to put that I'm an evidence or I'm a science-based thing and the Dunning-Kruger effect? Because that is, uh, at least at least on social media, that's been my experience. Of like, anytime I see like, oh, this, this, and I'm like, ah, this person's going to want to argue with me. I think there, I think there's something there. I think at the very least, what what I would say there's a correlation between is if someone is using evidence based or science based as a label, they are currently infatuated and probably recently exposed to it, or they're actively using it as a marketing tool. So the principle of charity makes me want to lean towards the first thing I said, and when I often see that, it is someone who is like third year exercise science undergrad student who's been a trainer for a couple of years. Um, I remember being that person. So I think, uh, absolutely there is an element of the Dunning-Kruger effect going on there, you know, early on. And it's also relative to what you see going on in the industry. So it's like, there was, uh, I'm dating myself here, but like 2009, 2010, there was so much stuff that was so obviously had come out of just like marketing and bullshit and just people stuff people said that we would call quote unquote bro science now that was actively harmful and not helpful and probably wrong, you know, um, that even with a bit of that Dunning-Kruger, the stuff that some of the quote unquote overzealous, like self-righteous evidence-based people were putting out there was better, you know, um, but pendulum swing. And I would say sometime around 2013, 2014, 2015, you had a whole lot of people who didn't actually understand the individual portion and the experience portion, and they were just throwing around studies, and it, it got bad to the point where I think you created these camps, um, and I, it, I think it just became counterproductive. And anyone who's been following my content and 3DMJ's content for the last 10 years, we've made a very intentional, overt focus on, hey, that's not how you do it, and we've tried to communicate that these are, this is an ecosystem. These three things are equally important. Um, and taking shots at each other like these camps is, is very counterproductive. Um, like I've seen some people kind of in, in, in the in the trenches people who, who they understand the science really better than these lab coats who don't even train, you know, like that kind of messaging, I think is just as harmful as the, what do these pro bodybuilders know who, who they can't even read? They just pick it up and put it down than all these studies, like that's basically closing two doors of very useful information that should be in synergy and combined. Um, so I, I do think to answer your question, I kind of went off on a tangent there. When I see someone who has science-based or evidence-based in their, uh, you know, their, their, their bio or their signature or whatever, I think there's a strong possibility that they might not be as open to anecdotal evidence and experience as they probably should be mm -hmm. the the trend that that i've seen now um has been to take whatever is the newest publication and then create what is labeled as a science-based workout like here's a science-based back workout um and sometimes i'm looking at that and i'm like i don't even know if i could write a science-based back work i mean you know i guess it depends on what you qualify as is like you know obviously we have the in you know, the in-house research stuff that we do or whatever. And I could say like, well, okay, I'm basing it off of this evidence, but does that qualify as science-based? Because so much of that is observation and anecdote and, and whatnot. And 
you know, I, I, I listen to your podcast and a lot of times, you know, just the thoughts in my head is like, you know, in this community, like most of my peers, like put you on this pedestal in terms of, you know, evidence-based and science-based. And I'm like, the majority of what's being discussed here is, ex is experience and anecdote. Like that's all of the details that are coming out are either things that you get, the things you guys are talking about from either your personal experience in training or, you know, experience you had in coaching or whatnot. Like, so what, when it comes to actually you making, you know, decisions on the gym floor for either for yourself or clients, like how much would you say, like, if you just had to put a percentage on it, like how much of it is like, well, this is science-based and this actually is from those other two pillars. Yeah. I, I think when it comes to day-to-day -day decisions, it's like 90% is based upon uh, what you're observing and experiencing um, rather than thinking, you know what, let me, let me jump into the most recent JSCR and see if there's a, there's a solution to this problem. Like my, I have a client who stalled in fat loss. Let me see if anything in the GISSN this month is going to solve that for me. Like that's simply just not the way you use science. And I think, I think there's, there's two ways to see the role of, uh, scientific publications and data in, in what you're doing. One is more meta and one specific. So the specific use of scientific data is to start in a more accurate range of what's likely to be beneficial for someone when you don't have prior data, right? So if I take the most recent and well-done meta-analyses on big picture uh, things like volume, proximity to failure, uh, repetition range, um, you know, number of exposures of specific training to get someone stronger versus accessory work, uh, you know, time course of adaptation or whatever, all that, all that good stuff. If someone comes to me and they just haven't had great logbooks, um, maybe they're just a novice, maybe they just kind of been program hopping for years and all that's quite common. And they go, coach, I, I, I'm not sure what's worked to this point, but I'm basically a novice. Where do I start? That's a better tool to get you closer to what is probably going to be best for them than saying, let me go see what the current Mr. Olympia or Miss Olympia is, is saying is best right now, or let me go hit up the most popular coach in this area. Um, if I had to, you know, if we're going to Vegas and I'm putting my money on something, I'm putting my money on, on that data, uh, rather than the, the, even, even the well, you know, gathered experiences of, of, of an experienced coach, you know, not that that wouldn't get integrated, but that's, that's where I would start, you know? And then the more meta thing that I've learned from being in, in academia is the scientific method, you know? You were, you were saying earlier that a lot of the times what we're talking about and me as someone who is seen as a, you know, an evidence-based kind of guy, I'm talking about an anecdote and observations, but, uh, science is nothing more than controlling and quantifying our observations and manipulating the environment in which we see those observations. So we can be more confident when we attribute causation. So Essentially, what I've learned from getting into academia, which I'm really grateful for, is that when I'm working with an individual or when I'm troubleshooting with someone, how do I control for confounders? How do I isolate variables? And how am I sure that the thing, the lever I'm pulling has a greater likelihood of changing the variable or that if I pull it, I can tell if it works or doesn't? Um, I think you'd be shocked. You wouldn't be shocked, but the listener might be shocked at how many coaches out there 
don't actually have methods to gauge whether someone is making progress. Um, they don't have systems in place to delineate between what is and what isn't working. They can't separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, and to some degree, there is a trade-off here. Like if someone's not making progress in a certain area, I'll, I'll put this in the biomechanics realm. Um, like if someone is not, uh, you know, seeing effective back growth and you see five different problems in the way they're, they're, they're programming or executing their training, the most likely way of improving their back is fixing all five simultaneously. It's, it's sort of the shotgun approach is let, let, let's do everything better, you know? Um, and there's a push and pull there. You have to decide, okay, do I want to do that? But if the cost of maybe not knowing which one of these five things is having the largest contribution to whatever progress I see afterwards. Um, so that is kind of the, uh, the push and pull that you have to decide as a practitioner is how much time do I have? How much goodwill do I have with the client I'm working with? How much patience are they willing to give me? And do I have like a competition looming? Um, and maybe we can, we can sort out the, the, the true cause and effect after this competition in the off season or something like that. Um, so that's that process and understanding that I understood it to some degree as a coach, but it wasn't until I actually started conducting research and what you do anytime you set up a research study is you sit down in a group of people who are involved in it and you really just rack your brains upon, okay, well, how is this going to confound with that? And you think about your study design so that you really make sure you isolate your variable. And even then, like how often do we have, you know, I'll review it in mass or you talk about it on your Instagram or something like that. And you go, yeah, the authors concluded this. However, it's possible that this other thing might've impacted those findings or they didn't consider this. And that's something that is, it's almost impossible not to have that happen because there are so many variables at play anytime we're, we're operating in, in such a, like a complex environment, like the human body changing as a dynamic system, you know, it's like, it's muscle forming, right? So like, did I water it enough? How hot was the sun? What's the ozone like? Like, did we step on it? Are these seeds from this part of the world? Is there iodine in the soil? All of those, th that is an analogy applies to trying to grow, you know, larger myofibers. So I think ultimately to, to get back to your question, and I, I know I'm tangenting a lot, this, the role of science for an evidence-based practitioner in the truest sense is getting you in the right ballpark as close as you can, and then using the methods of science, the philosophy of science, the scientific principles of observation uh, and, you know, designing experiments to then get closer to the truth in the most efficient way uh, possible. Um, but everything else is going to be based upon what you're observing in real time and your consultation with the person you're working with. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've heard you say is science is, doesn't speak in absolutes. It speaks in probabilities. Um, and that's kind of the way that I look at, you know, the way that I apply everything. When we, when we talk about a biased exercise, like that's really what we're talking about is, does this increase the probability of me getting that, the outcome that I want, right? That's, that's a really what we're talking about when we're getting more specific with selection stuff. And that's kind of you know, how I juggle those, you know, when there's multiple variables, like multiple areas of improvement as I look at, well, what is, what is the probability that this is at worst going to have no impact and potentially benefit, you know, and that, that, that's kind of, you know, how I'm looking at it. Um, 
one of one of the ways that I've kind of framed, you know, looking at academia versus kind of the observations and anecdotes that we're collecting for an individual is we have the most certainty when we constrain all the variables in terms of causation, but we lose the majority of context, like the individual context. We don't know all of the things that are attributes for that individual and what's going on with their environment and their daily. We lose all of that stuff. So I look at it as, well, the most contextual evidence I can get is actually observing the individual directly. But the most confident causation I can get is looking at situations where the, as many of the variables are controlled. And then how do you take and balance, you know, those, those, those two things? That's, you know, to me, that's what coaching is right there. Mm -hmm. That's like, okay, getting the principles from the, we'll say high confidence information, and then applying those principles to the contextual observations that you're able to get from a client. So, um, I think that's a good, like a good segue into the next thing, which would be, all right, if we're talking about increasing probability, uh, I'd like to get to exercise selection. So from a principle perspective, do you have any principles in regards to exercise selection that you use to increase the probability that somebody is actually going to benefit from that exercise from a, we'll just keep everything in the, through a hypertrophy lens for the sake of the discussion. Okay. Then, then I won't go down the principle of specificity route. Uh, cause that obviously will, will come into strength. Um, and thinking about, you know, mimicking motor patterns and kinetics and kinematics and all that good stuff. But yeah, when I think about things from a bodybuilding perspective, I think about things from, you know, what does the muscle do in the body? And then, you know, and, and there's layers to this. And, you know, to, to give you a lot of credit, I would guess that you are probably better with anatomy than I am, just because the amount of uh, specialization and focus you have on it, you know, as a strength conditioning uh, researcher, I have to be, I have to know what I don't know. And I have to have enough fingers and enough pies in the broad realm uh, to be able to be effective because uh, strength conditioning is very applied. Biomechanics, not that it's not applied, but I think it's really clear and important. I'm not a biomechanist. You know, I, I get invited to be on biomechanics papers so that I can help people understand what the heck the bio biomechanists are saying and to make sure that we can translate it into practice. So, um, so anyway. Uh, yeah. So generally I think of, you know, what does the muscle do? And kind of the first level is understanding like insertion and origin, just what is the joint action? Um, but then as you start to understand more and more of what muscles do in concert with other muscles, it gets more complicated. And, um, this is something that, you know, is borne out in the research on like biarticular muscles and how they function in compound exercises and the result of a lack of hypertrophy in those muscles, for example. But anyway, so I generally think of like, what are, uh, what, what are the muscles that we're trying to train doing? And then we would select our exercises based upon including those actions. Um, so, uh, I think also from a very heuristic perspective, thinking about human movement, um, I think you get it a little bit wrong when you think of uh, bicep exercises or back exercises or, or leg exercises like the bodybuilding community traditionally has done because it, it oversimplifies what's going on. Um, you know, and muscles don't really work in isolation. Like you were saying, when you're talking about an exercise that's biased towards one muscle group uh, or one region of a muscle, even, um, you're discussing probabilities and you're thinking about what is that uh, how can we get the most out of that muscle in that movement? But it's not to say that you are isolating it, which pretty much never happens, right? 
So I generally like to use the heuristic of thinking of kind of like six cardinal movements, um, a horizontal push, a horizontal pull, a vertical push, a vertical pull, a hinge and a squat um, with relatively broad definitions for each, what each of those are, you know, so a hinge doesn't necessarily need to be a deadlift and a squat doesn't need to involve a barbell at all, but simply simultaneous concentric knee and hip extension for the squat and, you know, minimal knee extension on the hinge and primarily seeing, you know, hip extension. Uh, and then the horizontal pushes and pulls can be in various planes and the vertical horizontal, sorry, the vertical, uh, pushes and pulls can also be in various planes. And then it's a matter of equipment availability, personal preference, weak points, individual injury history and, and, uh, mind muscle connection and, uh, differences in biome biomechanics between individuals, like, you know, joint structure, things like that. So I fall into those general categories. And then I look at what are the needs of the individual and kind of apply more specific work from there. Um, and I'm open to not necessarily having every single one of those categories filled for every single lifter. Uh, you know, you, there's a lot of debate as to whether a, a vertical press is, is required for, uh, you know, for hypertrophy of the shoulders. I, I tend to think that it's a pretty good movement for, for the, for the delts and finding a way to do something like that when you can is a good idea, but that's kind of a side tangent, but that's, that's generally how I start with it. I think of, um, what, what do the mus muscles do? And then what movements will, will get us there broadly and then kind of getting more individual, uh, with accessory work or isolation movements, et cetera. So are you layering in range of motion, relative muscle length and those type of things? And if so, where do they kind of fit? Like if, you know, let's say a person doesn't necessarily have a preference one way or another, is that something you're currently already like, okay, I'm going to, if I have these options, I'm going to, going to go that route for either I'm going to go for the exercise that is a little bit longer, or I'm going to go for the exercise that has a little bit larger range of motion. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, with the the data that I'm getting more and more and more and more confident in as, as more data comes out. Most recently, Cassiano et al. 2023, for example. Um, I absolutely think from a hypertrophy perspective that we want to create a decent amount of tension and try to train muscle groups at longer muscle lengths. So, for example, I even a couple years ago, maybe a little longer than that, I wouldn't have, like, hamstring curl, do whatever you want, you know? And now I like to see my bodybuilders do both seated and lying because, you know, in the lying position, your sartorius is going to be at a longer muscle length. And we have data showing that it might grow a little better in a lying position because of just its insertion and origin and at what point it's stretched. But the hamstrings themselves, um, they're going to be stretched in a seated position. So it might be good to have both, you know. Um, likewise, I think I would have said, hey, lateral raise, well, you got dumbbells, you got cables, whatever. But uh, now I'm much more inclined to be like, hey, we should probably use a cable lateral raise if we can, because you're going to get tension from from as soon as you're starting to pull on that cable in the position where your your delta is not shortened. Um, so a lot of the times these days, I'm specifically that that's more of like a oh by the way, a good exercise to select in these categories is or are those that would do exactly what you're describing, training those muscles at a longer length, providing tension. In what where in in the in the lengthened position rather than primarily shortened like a dumbbell lateral raise, um, and ideally you use the full range of motion that you have 
Uh, and maybe we even consider, you know, doing partials in the length and position with more and more data that comes out. But I think, um, yeah, that, that, that's basically how I layer those, those, those things. in. as I, I, I evaluate exercises within those categories based upon how efficient are they at stimulating, uh, the, the muscles that we're trying to train with them, um, based upon those criteria, range of motion and uh, relative muscle length in those positions and where that tension is. Mm. Now, as we dig into the nuances here, remember the audience is, you know, it's the people that follow me. So they love this, you know. Sure. Yeah. You, 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 you can go ahead and get deep. So I right now look at us as there's multiple kind of ways to kind of chop up the, the long muscle length research. Um, I was actually just having this conversation with Milo Wolf on Instagram the other day of like, well, mm. do we look at, do we can make the comparisons based off of the average muscle length? trained or do we look at it through the lens of well what was the actual like the absolute length that we got to um and then how do we then account for the overlying like resistance profile of those because right now the signal that you know the signal to me seems to be that there's basically a direct overlap of average muscle length and the absolute muscle length in the majority of, of, of the studies uh, the, there's a few exceptions where we have like the mid-range partials versus a full range type of movement. And then the overlapping signal with the length seems to be that the resistance profile either needs to be sustaining or ascending through the eccentric, right? So um, I believe you, you've you mentioned like, you know, there's a that one tricep study that's the anomaly um, and, and whatnot. And, you know, I think I was looking at we have a couple, a couple different studies that it wasn't the absolute length. It was the we had the preacher curl versus the incline curl, where the preacher curl, you know, had a better hypertrophy outcome. Um, I'm not like you; I can't reference authors and stuff like that. Like when I look at studies, I look at them like very, very deep, and I look at them through the biomechanical lens, and I'm pulling out all this stuff or whatever, and then I, I take away those little bits and that's all that my brain is left with. So you just have to forgive me for not being able to cite every, every, you are forgiven. Right. I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'll take the bro tag. That's fine. Um, and then the other one, um, was the lying tricep extension where we had full range of motion versus basically a partial that, uh, I believe went from uh, 45 degrees down to 90 degrees. So basically, you know, parallel with the body at the bottom. Um, and obviously when we're looking at preacher curl, incline curl, we can look at that as an example of, well, the incline curl has shoulder extension, so relative longer muscle length for the biceps, but the resistance is basically dropping off as we're going through that eccentric. So essentially we could look at it as the mechanical tension demand is actually decreasing as we're going into that lengthening position um, versus with the preacher curl, the resistance is not dropping off as fast as the biceps are losing leverage, even though you could say like the peak resistance is when the forearm is essentially parallel, the elbow flexors lose a lot of leverage when you get to a straight elbow and the pro like the amount of, you know, resistance is not dropping off. So to me, I'm looking at, okay, here we have a ascending resistance into the eccentric outperforming a longer relative muscle length. And same thing in the tricep study when we're looking at that, the partial was actually performed so that during the eccentric, the resistance was actually increasing, the lift was getting harder. And during the full range of motion, one um, essentially had the same scenario as the incline curl where the bottom half of the motion, essentially the weight was getting 
lighter. So when I'm when I'm looking at my current model of Titan and how the muscle is interacting and all the forces and potential sensors and stuff we have in there, that to me seems to make sense that in order to benefit from these long muscle positions, we would have to keep that a certain amount of engagement or activation to really benefit. Like that, that's to me what's looking at is it's got to be the combination and the lengthening at a local level. And that to me would be the best recipe for this being a tension related mechanism, if you will. And I think that's a separate mechanism than what we see in passive stretching, where we're literally just taking and we're sitting at, you know, a very end range. I think that like, I think if, you know, right now, I don't know how clear the definition is for like, what is stretch mediated? I feel like we almost may get to the point where we need a, a stretch mediated where we're literally talking about what's going on during passive stretching. And then maybe like a, you know, lengthened, accentuated, you know, terminology where it's just like, okay, if we're getting to kind of the longer spectrum, like my hypothesis is this exists a little on a continuum. It's not like, hey, as soon as you get to long muscle length, you get bonus. And, but like, it's like this hard stop. I think it's probably like, I think it's probably have like this, you know, this benefit increasing somewhere on the length and half to the length and 30% where we're able to use more than that. So when you're looking at the research, are there any of those things that you're kind of favoring more, whether it's like, I got to get the muscles long as possible versus, Hey, as long as we're in the length and half of the motion, or I'm really focusing a little bit more on, you know, finding something that's a combination of resistance profile and length versus something maybe that's longer, but doesn't quite have as good of a profile. Yeah. Great questions. And uh, I think I largely agree with you. I think, um, not that I disagree with you anywhere. It's just, I think we don't know a lot still. The um, the data overall, in my opinion, indicates that it's kind of like the area under the curve of exposure to a high tension at longish muscle lengths. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, for example, some of the studies you were you were citing the uh, the one by Goto uh, is where they did that uh, basically a a skull crusher in kind of the mid range, right? So they the depending on how you look at that. Like if you look at it with this kind of like a casual glance, you'd be like, oh, like the full range of motion group trained at longer muscle lengths because like the absolute angle change in the elbow was longer in that group. And that therefore the Goto study goes against the rest of the research on long muscle lengths because the full range of motion group uh, did, did worse. But when you look at the average muscle length changed, it was about like seven and a half degrees. It's a pretty small difference where the average muscle length in the partial range group was longer. So the amount of time spent at a longer average muscle length was greater in the partial range of group. And, and that's how you can make an argument that that's probably the case. Uh, the other way you could make that argument is when you look at uh, Pedrosa and colleagues, which did leg extensions, uh, as well as the most recent study uh, by Cassiano and colleagues, where they had like the first half of the, uh, the basically they, they split it up into two halves or the whole from having your your foot basically perpendicular to your tibia while doing, uh, you know, leg press calf raises. One group just went to their, till they were parallel. One group did full range motion and one went from, you know, parallel to full plantar flexion. And the group that was doing the initial partial had almost twice the gains in the calves compared to the full range of motion group, despite both of them being exposed to the same absolute length. So that, that, that makes you think it's, it's kind of the area under the curve of exposure at a high tension to longer muscle lengths 
that is kind of doing the quote unquote magic of, uh, of training at long muscle lengths. I think we've got enough studies that really give us an indication of that Goto kind of indirectly Pedrosa and Cassiano more directly. Um, but there are some studies that just don't show that effect. Uh, you know, like Workhausen just didn't find a significant difference. And, and that's where I think going back to our earlier conversation about how do we interpret science, the mistake I see some people make is that they need every study to fit into the mold. And if it's contrary to their model, they look for a way to pick the study apart and reject it. Uh, or they try to find the piece in there that might explain why. And it's not that you shouldn't do that latter thing, but you definitely shouldn't do the first thing <laughs> because the the continual issue we have with sports science is that we're dealing with small sample sizes and uh, sampling variants for those who aren't familiar. It's that if you were to take the small, the same size of a study and repeat it with another sample from the same population, when you're underpowered, there's a good chance, not just a small chance, that you could have a much different effect. And sometimes that effect could actually flop the other way. And to really put this into simple terms, if you go to a random gym and you select 10 people here and 10 people there, what are the odds that you're just going to get a total, a couple more total freaks in one group or a couple people who just were not dealt the genetic you know, hand that they wish they had for, for growing muscle? And that's 20% of that group. And do, don't you think that's going to affect the average and the variation to the point where you might see an effect that otherwise would have been significant not being significant. So we can't get too caught up in the weeds of any given individual study. We have to wait till we see trends. And I think we're at that point now where we can see trends, where I'm confident enough to say in agreement with you that I do think it's the kind of that area under the curve of being at a longer relative muscle length. But I don't think we necessarily need to be at the longest muscle length possible. Um, and to connect it with the kind of quote unquote stretch mediated hypertrophy, the data that is, is importantly, largely coming out of one lab group right now and only for one muscle, the, the, the calves, uh, if you want to look for, for other muscle groups, we're looking at animals. So unless you've got a wing that you're trying to hypertrophy, it's a little difficult to apply it. But the idea of these high intensity, long duration, high frequency static stretches inducing pretty appreciable hypertrophy, uh, and the most recent study, uh, by Warnicke and colleagues, um, pretty similar hypertrophy in the calves from stretching an hour a day in a boot, which I've done, not fun, um, comparing that to just five sets three times a week of calf raises in the 15 to 20 rep range to failure, similar growth. Um, maybe different mechanisms though. So I think there's a lot of, so that's so, so yeah, my, my first answer to your question is it's probably longer relative muscle length. There needs to be tension during that longer muscle length. And it's probably more about the area of the curve rather than just exposure to the longest muscle length possible. The second part of your question was kind of like, you know, what's going on to the hood? What's the mechanism? And uh, I do think that there are different but potentially overlapping mechanisms between stretching for growth and training at longer muscle lengths. Um, a couple of different things are going on here, right? So when you look at the, the stretch, quote unquote, mediated hypertrophy, we don't know uh, necessarily what the mechanism is. Um, there are, it's potentially a tension stimulus. It does produce muscle damage and has a similar time course acutely of uh, depressing force. So one of the early studies that Warnicke and colleagues did is they had people come in, stretch their calf for an hour or do like five sets of calves and then an hour later test their strength. And there was a similar deficit in force, you know, that kind of exercise induced initial force decline, right? 
So that's not necessarily measuring like Z-line streaming and myofiber damage, you know, three days later, but it gives an indication that at least acutely it's going to have a similar impact. Um, and in other studies, you can see that stretching can, can cause muscle damage. Um, but the idea of, okay, what is stretching doing? There's a number of things. So one thing anyone who, who does like extreme stretching for a long period of time will notice is they will often get pins and needles. Uh, they will often feel discomfort, not just pure pain. Uh, and I haven't seen it measured directly, but I think you are getting an ischemic effect. So you're effectively creating a hypoxic environment and, um, that could be creating some kind of stimulus. Um, when you're holding a stretch for that long, uh, Warnicky also did a really cool meta-analysis of all the animal studies, uh, where they did, I mean, if you think it's uncomfortable to you know, be in a boot for an hour, stretching your calf, try having a weight attached to one of your limbs for like three months you know, poor birds. So like, uh, some of the animal studies, I mean, they're showing effect sizes that are, are, are ludicrous, you know, that you don't see in human research, like four or eight. And by the way, 0.8 or higher is a large effect size. So the kind of hypertrophy, when you weight a limb and have an, an extreme stretch and no, they're not asking the birds, you know, how comfortable are you there or, or do you consent to this research? So it's, you know, torturing animals does produce a lot of hypertrophy. Um, that that's the takeaway. If you want to maximize hypertrophy, it's moderate torture is a hundred percent. You need to get a rack and you know, <laughs> like when, when you have, when your plumber comes over and they think you have a sex dungeon, but you're actually just obsessed with getting stronger, uh, you know, getting bigger that that's when you're doing it right. Um, so yeah. So, so the thought there is that we might be actually inducing hyperplasia and there's a, you know, a tension mechanism and creating a lot of damage that's actually you know, causing this, 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 this growth of new, new muscle fibers and, uh, and, and new hypertrophy. Um, and then there's also just the, oh, you know what, this is just tension. You know, it's the passive tension actually does, you know, get, get transferred through the various, uh, uh, structures in, in the muscle and the, the muscle tendon unit to actually induce hypertrophy. And it's not different. And, um, I think if exercise science teaches anybody anything, they shouldn't be looking for one mechanism. There's so many overlapping mechanisms and redundant systems. Like you can take a mice, knock out a gene, and it'll still get get some effect that you thought would have been isolated to that, which makes sense, right? Like millions of years of evolution, we wouldn't be here today if we didn't have that in place. So I suspect that when we are doing long muscle length uh, training, uh, we're getting a little bit of what's going on with stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Uh, we're also getting some effects, maybe enhanced you know, metabolic effects, if, if, if we think that's actually a mechanism, but it's also primarily, I would guess, just creating greater tension through the various sensing structures, um, in the muscle tendon unit. Um, what those specific structures are, uh, I don't think we know yet. Um, I've seen some people that that's one thing is I think sometimes when you get into the, the hypothesis behind this, you can build a house of cards. And if any single one of those layers in that house of cards is wrong, everything else falls apart. Like it might be the sarcomere that needs to be stretched. Maybe not, you know, like I, I, I don't know. We, we haven't measured this. So I think, um, at this stage, we kind of have to constrain our practice based upon the knowledge that we have from the applied studies. Um, and I would say, Hey, it probably makes sense to train at longer muscle lengths. Um, even if you want to do, you know, shortened partial. So like not performing full range of motion for your exercises, uh, that are for hypertrophy specifically, um, training, you know, the initial range of motion, 
spending more of your effort and time there, it's probably, uh, I'd, I'd say this stage that the data leans in favor of that being better than full range of motion, which was a surprise to me with the more and more data coming out. Um, and that doesn't necessarily change the game as far as volume, proximity to failure, frequency, et cetera. Um, and it can be something that's really simply applied. Take the same exercises you normally do, perform the first half of that range of motion, choose exercises that actually produce a decent amount of tension there. You could probably even make the argument that if you're doing lengthened partials, it makes it simpler. Like let's say there's not a lot of tension produced in that first portion of the lateral raise. Well, if you went all the way to like, you know, two reps from failure, eventually there would be, and it would all be at a long muscle length. So maybe it doesn't even matter, you know, once you're, uh, you're, you're doing these, these, uh, longer muscle length partials, it's not the most efficient way to do it, obviously. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that that's kind of where we're at and I'm always interested in speculation, but I've seen enough times where that leads you down a path and then something else that you didn't even think of pops up in the research and you're like, oh shit, I didn't even know that was a thing. So anyway, that was a a bit of an all over the place answer, but, uh, to really summarize average exposure to a longer muscle length kind of area under the curve probably doesn't need to be the longest muscle length possible. There should be some decent tension there. Um, and there are multiple, uh, mechanisms probably at play, some of which overlap with actual, uh, long duration, high frequency, high intensity, static stretching, but some that probably don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, from my background, like some of the questions I'm most interested are, well, you know, how long is beneficial, right? And if it is average, well, the longer I can go, the more I can lean that towards there, right? Or is there yep. a point of diminishing returns where all of a sudden you can, like, is it possible to get too long? Because by my standard, n none of the research that we currently have is the physiologically, like, fully lengthened position. So, like, that's just, that's a data point that doesn't even exist for me. So, you know, like, right now, every, like, people are gravitating towards very lengthened stuff. And we have exercises, basically like what I've tried to do is create this map of like, well, what's the shortest and the longest, you know, position for our muscle so that we can kind of understand the the path between there and use that as kind of a guide for, hey, if you're training this, here's how you could shorten it. Here's how you could lengthen it. You know, if you're looking at trying to find exercises that match the mechanics of that, now you kind of have like a point A to point B the, you know, is it's a lot easier than sitting down, you know, and trying to model the, you know, the relative moments in every plane when you can just have the end, the two endpoints and be like, okay, so it goes from here to here. Right. Um, so from a, we'll say from a simplicity standpoint, that's kind of what was leaned towards, but there's a ton of interest in like, okay, well, if we're doing length and partials, you know, can we get longer, you know, longer and anecdotally, you know, obviously there's, it's easier to feel the sensation of the stretch if we can get closer to that physiological length which i think can be helpful in terms of like the biofeedback of like are you actually getting putting the stretch and getting the tension in the in the tissue that you want um and i would say observation there does seem to be a we'll say a benefit in terms of orthopedic feedback right and as well as people's range of motion when we can actually go to like the physiological like end range of these tissues versus just working close, but not necessarily getting to the end. So I'm like, well, maybe even if it's not better for perch fee, maybe we're actually getting some benefits, you know, not, you know, maybe these will be longevity, you know, based benefits that we get from there, mm -hmm. ability benefits or, or something like that. Um, so one thing I would like to do, because I think 
within the evidence-based community right now, most people seem to have the consensus that, that we both do, that the research is largely in favor of long muscle lengths being superior. Um, but what are the, like, what are the contrarian arguments that you might have for that? Like we're looking at, well, we're volume equating just by, you know, same number of sets at relative effort, but I mean, length and exercises, you know, whether I, 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 I'm not super, I'm not super versed in all of the research comparing like different things, um, in terms of muscle damage and stuff like that. Like my general impression is, is that in the ways that we can kind of measure fatigue, it seems to suggest that longer muscle lengths are more fatiguing and more damaging. Um, and that's absolutely what I observe in practice. Right. And they seem to also affect like how soon you can perform again and stuff like that. So like one thing I'm looking at is, is like, well, what if we actually, you know, compare these with like volume tolerance? Cause if I like one of the things that we do in periodization is like when we do a deload, or if we switch somebody to where we have more of a, we'll say a nutrient partitioning metabolic type goal for a person where it's just like not hypertrophy. We're trying to like, we're trying to maintain muscle, but actually expend more calories or work on conditioning or whatever it may be. We're actually going to flip and bias more towards the short position with our, with our exercise selection, um, both from a resistance profile and whatnot. And what like the amount of volume that people can tolerate and seem to be able to like repeat the performance is really, really high. Um, you know, I would say on average, at least 50% more volume that they can tolerate it, that would be able to come back and have, you know, the same return to max strength and, and 50%. And this is one of the things that we do, like when we're playing around with this stuff is exactly what um, they did where they're just measuring, Hey, what's maximum isometric strength after you do this protocol versus that. Cause this is one of the things that we can, it's one of the things that like it's actually about the easiest thing that we can measure with, mm -hmm. with our lab stuff. It's just maximum isometric strength. It's like, well, that's very easy. We set a joint angle. We put the force gauge on there and like, okay, that's like literally the simplest thing that we do. Um, but looking at that, that's just, just kind of, kind of what we found. So that's one thing I'm like, well, could you choose to just do more? Like say you just love, you, you just love being at the gym and you love sets. Like, I don't know, could you get similar hypertrophy outcomes by just doing the same volume tolerance at shorter positions, right? So that, that that's one contrarian thing, you know, where I'm like, hmm. And then the Pedrosa study where they had the varied group in the leg extensions, that's the other, that's like the other point that I, I looked at and I was like, okay, the varied group actually did very, very well. Like the hypertrophy outcome was better than the full range of motion group. And it was actually in at least at one of the muscle in one of the muscle lengths, it was significantly better. And in the in another, um, it was insignificantly better. But for one was for the lateralis and one was for the um, the rec fem, I believe. But overall, the length and partial was by far superior. But I thought it was interesting that the varied group was very close to the hypertrophy outcome and significantly better than the full range of motion. And then when you look at the strength data, the varied group essentially had the best strength outcome. So to me, it's just like, well, my, the, the thing that we've been using for geez, like 12 years now is roughly like a 70, 30 split of like, okay, hypertrophy is the goal. About 70% of our volume is likely biased towards lengthened exercise. 
and about 30% in the short position because I've always, you know, I've always thought that there's some sort of benefit to continuing to like train through that entire range of motion. Um, and, and it didn't seem to add much fatigue. And it was like, well, maybe that's important. Plus like having that coordination in those other positions also then kind of, to me, it's just like, well, that maintains your coordination so that when you switch other exercises and stuff, you're like, the learning curve is going to not be so big. If all of a sudden you switch to an exercise and, you know, you don't want the short position to now be the limiter because it's now this novel thing that you've only been doing length and partial. So that's kind of like my argument of like, well, should we keep some full range of motion stuff or do a separate exercise, right? With the short position, will there be some orthopedics, some range of motion, some coordination benefits with that? Or is it just simply a way of adding more volume, more stimulus, maybe not the same magnitude of stimulus per set, but stimulus with less fatigue? Like, you know, you could look at those are, those are my two like big points of contention to people just saying, ah, oh, well, just everything, just all length and stuff, just, just partials or whatever. I don't know if, if if you agree with those or if you have different ones or if you're if you're just like, hey, yeah, just lengthen everything. No, no, I think uh I, I think it's a really I think it's important to highlight what we don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh we don't have data yet. You mentioned Milo Wolf. I know he's he's working on this. We're collaborating on it a little bit, um, on people performing full body training at lengthened uh positions, you know, partials compared to full range of motion training, and then looking at differences. Um, so what we don't know at this stage is, are there any potential downsides, um, when we're training only length and partials? Uh, and like you said, I think those can expand beyond just simply looking at hypertrophy, you know, coordination, orthopedic concerns. I think those are all valid. Um, I think another thing to be aware of is that if it is this whole area under the curve thing. We, what we really need to do is be con- like controlling for the amount of time spent. So like, you know, like if you're doing a partial and you get your 10 reps and then you get full range of motion, 10 reps, and they're both the same load, but it only took you half the time for only doing half the range of motion. Did you actually spend, you know, more time in that lengthened position or is it about the same? You know, so like, um, Milo's, uh, also doing some research using an isokinetic dynamometer, um, which for those who don't know, isokinetic, it only moves at one speed. So you can control for the range of motion uh, and the time spent in that range of motion. So you can kind of control for quote unquote t- you know, time under tension. So he's doing some research on the calves where uh, the, the groups that are training or the leg, I should say the limb uh, that's doing partials versus full, the same amount of total actual force output, the impulse is going to be the same in both groups, uh, you know, same relative effort, which might be, you know, higher forces actually. But Effort time under tension is equated, uh, and it's just the range of motion that differs. And I think that data will be important just to make sure that we are right about this whole area under the curve thing and, and average muscle length. And then another thing that I would add some additional uh, kind of nuance to what you were saying is that there are regional hypertrophy differences. Right now, um, it doesn't seem to be that the uh, the length, sorry, the shortened position, the end range partials get anything that you don't get from from the, the lengthened position, but there are differences. So, you know, you see more favorable hypertrophy, uh, like, sorry, you, you see the proximal muscle group growing more when you're doing the, uh, the shortened partials, but you see 
the proximal and the distal growing when you do full range or or lengthened partials. So I think that's 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 interesting. And maybe you could come up with a scenario where someone would actually no, I don't want that part to grow. I really just do want this proximal region to grow. Maybe I, I think that's probably going to be pretty rare and individual. Um, but I really like what you had to say of, of just acknowledging the fact that training at a longer average muscle length does seem to induce more soreness. Um, you, you probably, you're, you're getting more stimulus per rep. So therefore you're getting more fatigue. That's just kind of goes hand in hand. And that should be at least something considered, uh, when you're programming, um, to what extent can the repeated bout effect protect you against that and be beneficial? That probably at least has implications for the rate at which you start making these conversions over to longer muscle length partials. So I think there is a lot of nuance in the application. Um, like some exercises really don't lend themselves to, to these types of movements from a safety perspective. Like if you're going, you know what, I'm just going to do the bottom third of my squats, you know, my barbell squats, I'd be like, well, you better have a fucking spotter, you know? Like, <laughs> so, or like, you know, barbell pressing, you know, uh, in the bottom range, like when you're in the most challenging range with, with a weight that's on your chest, what do you do when you hit failure inadvertently or purposefully? So I think, um, while it may seem relatively straightforward, oh, we've got the calves study, we've got the, the, the quad study, we've got the bicep study, we've got the tricep study, we've got the hamstring study. Look, being in a longer average muscle length is a good thing. So let's go lengthen partials. It seems to work for almost every muscle group. True, but what exercise are you using? You know, how, how frequently, what's the volume, what's the proximity to failure? Um, understanding that there's probably just a higher risk of injury because you're generating higher tensions. Like all of that needs to be contextualized and in my mind, if I was going to take a client who wanted to try this, I would start converting a single exercise at a time. Um, and for me, while I definitely appreciate what you were saying about, hey, you know, I'm thinking about the actual, what is the longest muscle length I can get to per, per muscle per joint? And, you know, that will increase the average muscle length and kind of fits in with the model we're working with. At the same time, I'm, I'm sensitive to what I do, what, what we do and don't know. And what we do know right now is that if we take a known exercise of, you know, your vanilla exercise of a calf raise or a leg extension, and we do this and we just do the beginning part of that range, it's more effective than doing the full range. So the safe experiment, uh, is to take someone's current program and then just select, you know, one or two exercises per muscle group and go, all right, we're just doing the first half of that range. Everything else stays the same. Uh, and we see how it compares, um, we can go out on a limb, no pun intended, uh, to try to, to like, okay, now that we understand this principle, let's, let's go back and try to train in a longer muscle length, um, and find the longest muscle length. But I'm not sure we actually understand that principle yet. I don't think we, we know the mechanisms. Um, and maybe there is such a thing as training at too long of a muscle length, perhaps. Um, I could construct some weird reason why that is, but I, I would have very little confidence in that being the case. But we don't know that that's not a thing. So uh, if we were to limit ourselves to what we do know, and and make the safe money uh, bet, which I often do because I'm I'm boring and lazy and not lazy, I'm boring and lame, and I'm a scientist. Um, that's kind of the way I would put this into practice: is start thinking about, all right, so we'll do the the leg press bottom half, calf raise bottom half. We'll do, you know, seated hamstring curls in addition to lying. Uh, we'll do cables on lateral raises. We'll do bottom half of presses, and we'll do that first por portion of your, of your your rows and pull downs mostly, 
and same thing with uh, you know curls and pushdowns, and leave it there and see what happens. Um, and then as more understanding and, and mechanisms are uncovered, we can we can start taking it further. Um, I think like looking at the body of research that we have now, the majority of the muscles that we have measured, we have been able like most of most of them are close to their physiological length. Right. So, you know, I mean, the leg extension, you could argue is, well, it's not, a, it's not a, you know, length and rec fem. You're not in, you're not in hip extension, but if you're doing full knee flexion, you can't fully extend the hip, you know, unless you're, you know, very hypermobile anyway. And the length change of the quad at the knee is significantly greater than it is at the hip. So if we actually look at like, you know, of the length change, kind of where we occur, we're still like that length and partial is still on you know, the longer half mm. of the quadriceps, right? Same thing for the biceps because it changes length more at the elbow relative to how much it changes as you're going through um, shoulder flexion extension. But we do have some muscles in the body, like the lats are a great example of this, where, you know, if we look at the upper portion of the lats and you were to just do a row where you're just allowing protraction to occur, but you weren't like doing this pull around thing where you're adducting, you're getting fairly lengthened in terms of that muscle's physiological capacity. But once we start looking at the other divisions, like to be able to just stay in like a sagittal plane and go up or, you know, if you use the lap pull down bar where you can't like now you're, you know, you're limited, like depending on how wide you grab that bar, you may be actually barely, if at all, getting on the lengthened 50% of that physiological leg. So like the, the iliac, the most lateral fibers of the lats, if we don't like actually like open the rib cage and bring the arm up and across, like we can essentially add like 60, like we can increase the amount of length by 60%. And not, not the muscle 60% longer, but the difference between, you know, the short and the, and the lengthened position. Some people are like, Oh, that's impossible. I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. They're not making the muscle. Yeah. The, re the relative increase in the, the muscle yes. length you're training at compared to the two variations, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing for the lumbar. So basically the two lower segments of the lats, um, were very limited on like getting onto that length and half. And if we just go by anecdote or observation, like for the longest time, bodybuilders had this, like, you know, so many athletes complain about this high lat syndrome. Right. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, you know, coaching tons of people in the physique world, like very rarely do I'm like, oh, you know what I really need is I need more upper lats. It's always like, no, I need more of the the lower ones. I mean, this is that just a coincidence or is that a consequence of the base exercises that we have for some muscle groups? We just, you know, we happen to already have great exercises that are getting us to these longer muscle lengths. And then for other muscle groups, it might be like, Hey, we didn't, we don't actually have anything in the conventional toolbox. So that to me is those, like, those are the areas where it's like worth exploring further out. And that's kind of like, you know, what we've been playing around with, with like the lat stuff and the pole arounds and things like that is like, all right, how could we get it so that we're training these muscles under closer to the same physiological conditions that seems to be working really well for the other ones, because they're definitely to me seems to at least be some anecdotes that, well, this seems to be a habitual problem for a lot of people that are trying to achieve this, right? You know, um, is it really true that, you know, you have to do twice as much pulling as pushing? 
or is that a factor that you know most of your pushing exercises if you're using free weights or even most machines are all length and biased and most of your pulling stuff is all short and biased and it's literally that you know like well you know dose per set versus well you're gonna have to do more sets if you can't work at the ranges where you're getting a higher degree of stimulus or, or mechanical tension um you know i think i can even recall uh, i've in preparation for this, I listened to your podcast with Dr. Swole because you exercise selection was the topic there. Um, and I believe you measured, you mentioned that like, well, with like traditional lap pull downs, like either uh, you wouldn't get a sore as much or, you know, not consistent pumps and things like that. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, well, maybe we're not getting to these lengths or we're not necessarily positioning that tissue to have the leverage that it should. Um, you know, so that's the where I look at from a what are what are the problems mm. that need to be solved with the current with the current modalities that we have, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't get me excited to teach people like how to do elbow flexion, you know, <laughs> like it doesn't. But what is exciting is to be able to teach somebody the nuances of you know how the different shoulder positions affect the two head of the biceps and how grip affects things and whatnot. So that then when they have a client that either has a specific goal or they have some discomfort or, or whatever it may be, that all of a sudden they then have the tools to like put some stuff together. Um, I would love to dip deeper into exercise selection, but we're going to be out of time soon. And I want to do the come at me, bro, uh, portion of this. Uh, I just want to let you know that in a, in a short poll of my closest friends, uh, I am undefeated against people with PhDs. Uh, and I have stolen two titles from Dr. Mike Israel, the most hated person by Paul Carter and uh, by Lyle McDonald. So no pressure. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so, yeah. So um, this is my favorite part. This is any, any like I know you've, you've looked at some of the stuff that we do on social media. You've probably looked at some of me like looking at some of the research and trying to do my 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 best science commuter science communicator interpretation and I've just absolutely been butchering it. So yeah, well, give, give me your best, give me your, or your worst, I should say. No, first, first I want to, I, I, and this, I promise this is not just the beginning of, of, of the, the shift sandwich or the compliment sandwich where you say something nice, then something mean, then something nice again. But I, I, I say, I want to say that I think with the lats specifically, there's a perfect storm going on. Um, in the sports science world, very difficult to measure changes in muscle thickness in the lats because there's no mm. easy landmarks where you can see with an ultrasound. It's kind of hard to chuck someone's whole torso in an MRI. Um, so you'll see very few longitudinal studies on hypertrophy in the lats, and that's an active problem that we need to solve. Um, and yeah, I think those are some very valid anecdotes, and you might be right. And I think that is an area where I th I really like what you're doing, and I think it's um, there there is a that that specific muscle group is complex and i think because it's on the back of our body and when we're pulling we're thinking about what our arms doing i think it's difficult to even uh have like a good mind muscle connection with your back so i think that is a, a consistent problem and it may be related to that so i think that is a absolutely i agree it's a good area to be experimental to be innovative because we probably aren't going to have the research to really have like the kind we're not going to have the pedrosa study anytime soon on the lats you know so Anyway, just wanted to big up you there. As far as a critique, I don't have many critiques of you looking at research and, you know, identifying it. I think you do a, or, or like interpreting it and communicating. I think you do a good job there and you've clearly spent a lot of time reading it 
and you're always open to feedback, which I think is a positive thing. The, the one thing I think that might sometimes get in the way of the things you're trying to teach is actually the interpersonal conflicts that come with it. You know, you mentioned the most hated man by Paul Carter and, uh, and the battles with PhDs. I think unfortunately in our community, because a lot of the individual people following our content can't necessarily dig through the specific minutia. What they tend to do is they go, you know, I like that person. I like the way they think their content makes sense and whether they want to acknowledge it or not. And they know they shouldn't their, their team chasm or their team Carter or their team Helms, their team is And when the debates between camps become him versus him or him versus her or they versus they or whatever, um, they're in a position where they're more likely to be biased when they take in the information, the consumer, not, not even the necessarily the person arguing, of course, the person arguing is because now ego's on the line. But, um, I think there's probably a lot more value in specifically trying to make an effort to address the idea and the content and not even mentioning whether this person disagrees with me, agrees with me or attack me or not because I think that can be a distraction to the learning of the individual. So that's like the only critique I have, you know, I, the, the debates themselves, the content versus content, I think this, they think this, that, um, that's worthwhile. You know, the, the, uh, the, the arena of ideas is where the best ideas come out of. Right. But I think the, the human in all of us, when we think of it, not as the arena of ideas, but the arena, the arena of him versus him, that becomes an additional layer that we have to get through people to be their more rational selves. So that's the only critique I got for you is maybe try to focus more on the ideas rather than the people saying them. Well, that, that is, the, that is always the goal. And that's usually where it always starts. It just doesn't always, it doesn't always stay there. Um, because I would, I would say some people, they, they are too tied to their ideas that like the, these ideas become their, their, their personality or, um, whatever, whatever, you know, they're just, they're just too closely held that you can't discuss anything that would be contrarian to that and it not be taken personally. Um, but I mean, in, you know, in reality, the majority of people that I have had, like, you know, very technical debates and conflicts, like I have, you know, actually better relationships with all these people after, you know, after we go through and have these discussions and, and whatnot. And I, you know, that's actually something that I'm trying to do. We've, we've built this headquarters here in Colorado. And what I kind of want to do is, is like, Hey, how many people that have views that are, you know, at least adjacent or maybe contrarian to what we do, bring them in. Like, you know, I'm opening my door and putting these people in front of, in front of my audience so that it's like, Hey, you're getting exposed to something new, but also they're going to come in and challenge, you know, what, you know, team N1 or team Casim already has. And I think, you know, what that's done with an open invitation, I think that's like, it's great because people are, you know, I'm trying to make my audience more receptive so that it's as least culty as possible, knowing that it's, mm. it's, 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 inev it's inevitable. Right. But to, to, to play the, or to, you know, defend the, the other side is I, at, at a certain point in time, sometimes I'm just like, look, it's just best to just address, like if the, if the only thing coming back is just one person and maybe it is personal, you know, on, on, on their end or, or whatever that it's like, all right, I'm just going to address it directly. And 
this is something, you know, I've talked with a few people about where, like, for instance, some people will just be like, oh, you know, these biomechanics experts on social media and they'll put quotes and, you know, it's like capital, lowercase capital, like whatever, whatever the way is to passively insult a group of people, um, you know. And so basically what it does is it says, hey, everybody that uses the same common terminology, I'm now putting out this attack at your general practice or, or whatnot. And so I'm trying to balance the pros and the cons of like, well, okay, if I just talk about an idea, right, that's the best I can do, right? But then some people will criticize a group of people because they don't want to point out like that one or few people that are, we'll say, you know, behaving poorly within that group but then what it does is it throws everybody else under the bus and it's like well why are we taking whole you know areas of science and being like well people that do this are are bad right um when in reality like none, none of the people on tiktoks are biomechanists i don't even consider myself a like a biomechanist a biomechanist i i look at a very niche level of mechanics specific to resistance training. I'm not sitting here and counting all the force vectors for the patella and trying to figure out the shear and my pendulum squat and all those things. I'm the, the, I'm looking through the lens of like, how does this apply to, you know, personal training, getting more bigger, more stronger, right? And through the, through that lens. So to me, it's like there becomes a point where I have to be specific so that I don't accidentally, you know, attack or offend anybody that that's doesn't, you know, apply to. And that's all like, I think it's lose, lose. Once a disagreement gets to a certain, like once, once it becomes personal, it's, it's usually, it's usually lose, lose in terms of, well, if I don't address it personally, the person's going to attack me personally anyway. So, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give anybody else any, bad feelings by association. So I'm, I'm just going to be specific. And the other, the, the other counterpoint is it, it does great for engagement. Flesh. It, 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 like it does. Uh, and I, I don't know that that's not necessarily a good thing, but I would say that in, in some of my biggest growth spurts, you know, from a social media following, but also just interest in our stuff, have stemmed from disagreements, whether they have been like very good ones or ones that have gotten, you know, bad or whatever, right? Like the, the few times that I have been like the most personally attacked on social media, um, whether or not somebody else named an exercise after me called a, you know, cast glute bridge or, or whatever. Uh, and then there was a whole group of people upset about that or whatnot. And it wasn't even something I did, but in those instances, it's almost like that exposure and then me just taking a very objective approach to, hey, presenting my case. Um, even if it was say, hey, this person said this or did this thing, and here's exactly what I think about that personally. Because I'm not using ad hominem, et cetera, I feel like these have actually been, we'll say, great moments for growth in terms of the people that are interested in that. So I can understand, I know there's people that get turned off by you know the constant back and forth and right now i think it's unfortunate that like the lat topic is one where people are just like they're so like they're so sick of the back and forth on certain things um you know this flip-flopping between you know one influencer one week is saying that this is a lat pull down and they're saying it's a latless pull down and 
you know, it's just like this back and forth, people just rotating because they, they're not taking the time to actually understand anything behind it. So they're just flipping from one absolute opinion to, to another. Um, and I think when these things stay unresolved, like that's when actually people tune out the most, right? Like when the debate is new and it's hot and there's new information, everybody's interested, personal or not. And then, but when there's no objectivity to come to a solution, and then it just becomes two people just flinging the same crap back and forth. That's when I think people lose the the most interest. At least that that's that's my experience. So I think that's I think is an absolutely a valid critique. Um, I don't know how well I did defending it, um, but that's a that's an area where I've been trying to improve, learn, evolve, constantly reassess. And I, you know, you're familiar a little bit with what we do on the science side of things in terms of I've invested into a whole in-house lab, right? You know, I love experimenting with things. No different here. Sometimes I just love just like, Hey, you know what? Let's see what happens. Um, and just do a little social experimenting. Um, I mean, you know, the platforms there never been a better time to be able to, to be able to do this. Uh, what's the worst that can happen? I, you know, no longer on Instagram. To me, that's not like, I mean, obviously it's a business hit, but like personally, it's like my life would probably actually exponentially improve if I could no longer go. <laughs> so, um, all right. Any, any, anything else you could think of? No, that was the big one. And uh, I, it's, it's good for me to hear, you know, re re rebuttal, whether I think it's, you know, the perfect rebuttal or not. The most important thing is you clearly put a lot of thought into this. Something like you said, you're working on, and that's all. I just wanted to provide something that was hopefully helpful considerations for you moving forward because um, I think you have uh, useful in in insight into areas which it's difficult to get out with the research like that one example of the lats not the only example but that one example and um, yeah anything that gets in the way of that I'm not a fan of so yeah I, I think uh, uh, that that's all I got for you though and I hope it was helpful awesome awesome um, I guess if I if I can use the last two minutes here to ask you your opinion on like so like we take this thing for the lats for example like do you think there's any merits to like policing information if if it's if it's verifiably false right so people throwing out a citation and literally you know misrepresenting what the study said right you know I mean and we're not talking about things that are like up for interpretation or like, Hey, this study measured that. And I'm like, mm -hmm. they literally did not ever measure that in the study or literally flipping like, Oh, Hey, this said it was, you know, type one dominant. And like it's 64% type two. I don't know what your definition of dominant is, but usually it has to be more than half or at least more than the other things, you know, or whatever it may be like. So when, when it's crystal clear like that, um, cause if I had to complain a little bit, in some of these situations where like, I would say like, uh, the offenses are egregious. I'm like, why am I the only one mentioning that this is clearly a false statement? Mm. No, I think there absolutely is a benefit to that. And I think what's the most important thing is doing it right. Um, and since I only have, you know, a minute before I got to jump off, I would encourage anyone who happens to be a mass subscriber and i'm promise this is not shameless self-promotion to check out uh pseudo i have an article in mass called misinformation pseudoscience and disinformation oh my um and then we also have an iron culture episode 
free to listen to <laughs> called How to Call Out BS in Pseudoscience. And I think myth busting and policing pseudoscience is a very important thing to do, but I think equally important to doing it itself is how it's done. Uh, because in the social media era where it creates, you can have pockets of information that are separate from the rest, you know, look no further than, you know, politics and, and people who really just don't even get to hear counterpoints uh, to, to various things and the way conspiracy uh, movements grow. Um, it's incredibly important to do it in a way that is most likely to have an impact. So I think the knee-jerk response of seeing it and publicly calling someone out can often do more harm than good. And there is a way to go about doing it where you contact the person directly, you speak to them, understand where they're coming from, and then potentially get that change to occur because their audience is going to be much more receptive to them than it is to the random commenter on their their post anyway. Um, so to not just create even more tribal divisions on, on online, I think it needs to be done the right way is my short answer. Long answer, check out the Iron Culture episode. So... All right, I'll put all of your contacts and stuff in there. If there's anything else you want to uh, plug before we head off here, go ahead. No, I just want to say thank you for having me on. And anyone who's more interested in the whole bodybuilding thing that I'm involved in, check out 3dmusclejourney.com. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give us a like, subscribe, and leave us a review. And we will see you on the next episode of the N1 Experience.